Uh, this morning, we're going to be back in our, our series. We're, we're jumping right back into Daniel. I'm going to be preaching out of Daniel chapter 4. Um, and so uh, let's start, if everyone will stand. Uh, we're just going to read two verses out of cha- uh, Daniel 4, and, uh, and then we'll come back through the preaching and, and look at the rest of the chapter. But we're going to look at Jan- Daniel chapter 4, verses 24 through 25. The word of the Lord says this. <clears throat> This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, we come to your word this morning uh, seeking to know you. We want to know your heart. We want to know what it is that you uh, are, are revealing to us about yourself. Um, you have passed down the word from the prophets and later the apostles uh, that we would know the truth, that we would know the Lord, and and we pray, O God, that you would uh, use your word this morning to open our hearts uh, to to your salvation, to the faith which saves, Um, and help me, Lord, this morning uh, with my my scratchy, raspy throat and with a difficult text to preach. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, Again, we return to the book of Daniel this week where we find God's people, the Jews, uh, from the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, Judah. They've been conquered and exiled by, by the Babylonians. In an attempt to permanently subjugate the people, they are compelled to conform to the customs of this new empire. And many of God's people have become in- integrated into the Babylonian culture. But as we've seen, there are at least a few, right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we, we looked at yesterday, who have been given the liberty to maintain their native ways of life, right? Though uh, that has not come without severe testing. See, Babylon was a, a proud empire. Its military strength was the fear of many nations. The, uh, it was an economic powerhouse. The beauty of its arts and culture was like nothing the world had ever seen, and its architecture was world-renowned. The Babylonians were a proud people, and no one had more to boast in than its king, Nebuchadnezzar. We've already seen the tyrannical power of Nebuchadnezzar on display over the past few weeks in our series through Daniel. Uh, He was able to retain for himself the the finest servants from that southern kingdom of Judah, which they conquered. He could legislate the diet of his officials just to show his power. He could tell people what they could and couldn't eat. He even attempted to coerce his subjects into acts of worship and religious conviction that was foreign to many of them. But as we have already seen, the Lord, the God of Israel, has revealed his power 
to subvert Nebuchadnezzar's attempts to destroy those uh, who stood their ground and refused to dishonor the Lord. And because of these displays of God's sovereignty and faithfulness, Nebuchadnezzar has even, in the, in the last few chapters of Daniel, paid homage to Israel's God. But it appears that this acknowledgement of the Lord's power and authority has not made its, its way from the king's head to his heart. Nebuchadnezzar continues to rule his empire with a prideful dedication to his own glory. He shows contempt for the sovereign authority of the Lord and attempts to rob him of his rightful honor, which manifests itself in Nebuchadnezzar's sin against God and against his fellow man. History proves the, the cliche that the more things change, the more they stay the same. God gives authority. That's what he, he's done for us. He gives authority to parents, to, to managers, to CEOs, to government officials and kings, but he gives it to them. He gives authority to these entities as to, to be stewards of what is rightfully and eternally the Lord's. Man is granted dominion over properties and households and companies and lands in order to cultivate them, to make them produce and prosper. But these are ultimately given for God's glory. The world and its leaders exalt themselves rather than God, and they ignore and even hate the sovereign glory of the Lord. Eventually, God's judgment will fall on all, all nations, all individuals who oppose him and, and those who wickedly exalt themselves. And even Christians can be tempted to put hope in or they can be tempted to despair of prideful, worldly, maybe even inept authorities which undermine our faith and can lead us astray. As exiles in a worldly kingdom, God's people are tempted to consider powerful leaders and kingdoms as the chief rulers and providers. If we fail to acknowledge and trust in the sovereignty of the Most High, we will lose our identity as his people and will begin to depend more and more on prideful fallible mortals and will eventually meet the same end as them. So in Daniel chapter four, we'll see God's sovereign mercy, his sovereign power and his sovereign grace on display in the life of Babylon's mighty emperor, Nebuchadnezzar. As he warns him, he humbles him and he restores him for all to see so that God's glory might be displayed and acknowledged by the king himself, by the people Israel, by the rest of the nations. So let's return to God's word. Daniel chapter four, starting in verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all, the, all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. The chapter begins in kind of an unlikely way. Nebuchadnezzar lays the cards on the table from the get-go. We know how the story ends even before these events are, are, are unfolding before us. The emperor wants everyone to know that the most high God is supreme and that he has done great things for him. Remember, Babylon is a massive empire. It's stretched from what is modern day Egypt uh, in, the, in the, the west, sorry, I was having a geography moment in my head, in the west to, to western Iran in the east, I'm doing that backwards, right? To western Iran in the east, um, and, and then on the north as, as far as Syria, and then south even, even deep into what is modern day Saudi Arabia. The, this, this empire was vast, Babylon, had overtaken most of the known world in the, in the Near East, at least. There were dozens, if not hundreds, of people groups incorporated into the Babylonian Empire. And with these people groups, there are many different languages spoken and, and deities worshipped. For the most part, Babylon allowed people to continue to worship their own gods, right? Their, their gods weren't really a threat to Babylon, they weren't a threat to Nebuchadnezzar. After all, they, these gods, right, little g gods, had failed to protect their people from the Babylonians when they came to conquer them. Nebuchadnezzar only asked these polytheistic worshipers to add Babylon's gods and emperor to their pantheon. And this seems to be what Nebuchadnezzar had done with Israel's God, uh, the Lord. Yahweh. Daniel chapter 3 ends with Nebuchadnezzar recognizing Israel's God and even forbidding people from blaspheming him. Right? But we'll see that the emperor hadn't really yet understood the reality that the Lord is the most high supreme sovereign God. At least not yet. But now, here at the beginning of chapter 4, the king is singing his praise in a doxology which highlights him, the Lord, as the one whose kingdom and sovereign authority is everlasting. The peoples of Babylon had better pay attention. See, it, it is possible for people to give lip service to God as a, a general nod to a divine reality that they do not yet know. The existence of cultural Christianity is still rampant in, in our land and in much of the West. People assume that their responsibility is to believe in God, like an, as an alternative to atheism. But merely acknowledging that there is a God up there is not, nor has it ever been, the mark of salvation for any of us. Going through the motions of Christianity while living life as if you are your own Lord is a, a condemning religion which neither glorifies God nor saves us from his judgment. Nebuchadnezzar had been very religious, even recognizing Israel's God as a real powerful being. 
But until the following events took place, his beliefs had not translated into true faith. He, has, he still believed himself to be the source and the center of his life and his glory. Beware, Christians, that you do not fall into the same error. Nebuchadnezzar begins his story in, in verse four. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whose name, or in, excuse me, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. And we'll continue in a moment. See, this section starts out with the king relaxing in his life of luxury. He's chilling at the chateau. He is at ease. He's flourishing, right? To, to quote Mel Brooks, it's good to be the king, right? The people who laugh, right? You're, you're my people, right? Mel Brooks movies. But as we've seen before, palace guards and ample flowing wine cannot drown out the revelation of the living God. Nebuchadnezzar sleeps. And once again, as we've seen before in Daniel, the God of Israel disturbs his rest with alarming visions and dreams. The king can't decipher the message. And just as he did, uh, in Daniel chapter two, he calls for the wise men to come and interpret what he has seen and heard. Now this event doesn't seem as dire as the previous one. No one's life is threatened and it seems that it, at least this time, Nebuchadnezzar is willing to tell his magicians the vision that he had dreamt. But just as before, the king's officials were unable to come up with the meaning until Daniel finally pays him a visit. <clears throat> now, if you're paying attention, this should sound familiar, not just because uh, this happened in Daniel chapter two two, chap two, two weeks ago, right? But also because it happened in Genesis chapter 41, right? When, when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had a disturbing dream that his wise men couldn't figure out, uh, another young man, a Hebrew named Joseph, was brought in to interpret. Just like Daniel, Joseph was an exile, a slave brought by force out of his homeland. He was a member of the chosen people of God who practiced righteousness and remained faithful to the Lord and who prospered in all his ways. Sounds familiar, right? Daniel, in writing this book to his people, he would have known uh, that, that even in the, during the Babylonian exile, his audience, his Jewish audience would have picked up on the similarity in the way that God is dealing with, with him and Nebuchadnezzar 
and, and the way that God dealt formally with Joseph and Pharaoh and, and Israel. Just as the Lord showed through Joseph uh, that he was still calling the shots in Egypt, right? He's bringing about all these events, all these crazy things, even these unfortunate and, and awful things. He's bringing all of those things together for the eventual salvation of his chosen family. The Lord is still sovereign over everything going on in Babylon. And, and he's using Daniel as a Joseph-like figure to encourage the faith of his people, even in the midst of a terrible period of national history. God had promised his people through the prophets that while they were being judged for their own sinful rebellion against the Lord, he had not left them, nor would he forget them. God is going to deliver his people. He did in Egypt. He did, he will in Babylon, as we'll see. And, and he will now, today, no matter who our leaders are and what they're doing. Back to the dream. Nebuchadnezzar had, had recognized early on that Daniel was, was different than the other wise men. While they used their rituals and pagan practices to try to find a meaning in his visions, Daniel received revelation from his God, and, and it was accurate. While we can see that Nebuchadnezzar still hasn't quite gotten it yet, I mean, he, he still calls Daniel Belteshazzar after the name of his God, right? He still declares that Daniel had a spirit of the holy gods. So he still has some polytheistic things going on in his heart. In spite of that, the king rightly recognizes Daniel's gift. And so he shares his vision with Daniel. Going back to, to verse 9. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw in their, and, and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was, fruit, was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know 
that the Most High rules in the kingdom, in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. The king tells Daniel his dream. There's a tree. It's beautiful and fruitful. It protects and houses all kinds of animals. It provides food for them. But a watcher, a holy one, comes down with a message of judgment. The tree is to be chopped down and stripped. All of its beauty is destroyed and all of the animals that it maintains are scattered. But the stump with its roots is left behind and securely bound. Then the watchers start to refer to the tree and it as a he, right? That, that, that pronoun changes. He is to eat what the beasts eat. He has the mind of a beast. And this will last seven times. That's my summary of what we just read. This, this, this watcher, these holy ones, they're angels. Uh, both of these words, holy ones, Watcher, they're used throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, to describe the heavenly host, right? The armies of angels which minister to God by carrying out his decrees in heaven and even at times on earth. And many times, much is made uh, about the, the seven times when it comes up in scripture, right? Is it seven days, seven weeks, months, years, millennia? I tend to fall into the camp that interprets seven times to mean until the time is complete, right? And until God's finished, until it's done, right? The number seven in scripture represents fullness, completion, holiness. God gave us seven days. He, he created everything in six, six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Uh, and, and, but we're not given a full explanation for how long this seven periods of time will last uh, either in the vision or in Daniel's interpretation. So rather than making an assumption that I can't really support or prove, I think that for our purposes, we should understand this to mean that, that this vision will be carried out until the pre-allotted time is complete, until God, until the, the, the days set by God have been fulfilled. Another interesting part of this vision is in the fact that the holy ones tell Nebuchadnezzar exactly what the purpose of this whole thing is. Look back at verse 17, right? They say, to the end, right, for the purpose that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets, it, sets over it the lowliest of men. So Nebuchadnezzar can know whatever this vision means, however it's going to play out, he is plainly told what the outcome will be. Somebody is going to find out that the most high God is sovereign over all the kingdoms, even to the extent that he gets to pick who's the boss. Nebuchadnezzar finishes telling Daniel the vision. And then comes something that I've become very familiar with as a family pastor. A long uncomfortable silence. 
verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. As, as Nebuchadnezzar relays the vision to Daniel, the Lord is making its meaning clear to his prophet. When all is said, Daniel realizes that this is not going to be an easy thing for the king to hear. The, the last time Daniel was in this situation, he got to tell the king about empires that would come after Nebuchadnezzar was, was already dead. Right? Not a whole lot of bad news there. Right? He, he got to tell them that his kingdom was like the beautiful and strong part of the statue and that those who would follow wouldn't be as great as him until ultimately a stone would tear down the whole thing. It's not great news for the emperor, but it wasn't disastrous. This time, Daniel had to tell the king some hard truths. Have you ever been there? Maybe the powers that be at your place of employment handed down a decision to, to downsize and you get to be the one that makes the cuts. Maybe you didn't get the raise you expected and you have to tell your family that the week in Orlando might have to wait another year. Maybe your customer just came in for an oil change but you noticed some issues that can't be avoided that are going to cost a whole lot more money than they were expecting to pay that day. Being the bearer of bad news is rarely, if ever, an enjoyable responsibility. But if you're a faithful employee or a faithful leader or a faithful friend, you sometimes have to do the hard thing. Even when you do it with gentleness and compassion, the results can be painful. Daniel has to give some bad news to a guy who has already killed a bunch of wise men before. And, and who has just recently thrown three of his personal friends into a furnace. When you share the gospel with others, there's a part of the good news that, that stings. God has made a way to save us, but it comes by confessing our sin and dying to ourselves as we receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus alone. When that conversation presents itself to you, are you willing to share the whole truth, even the painful part? Daniel had to make that decision very quickly. God's word continues in verse 20. It says, this is Daniel speaking. He says, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the, the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and in the tender grass of the field and, le and 
let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is a really long run on sentence if you've noticed, right? It continues. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you will be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to, to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The, the beautiful, fruitful tree that provided food and shelter for the beasts, the tree that had grown strong and glorious, the tree that is about to get chopped down and destroyed. It's you, O king. Daniel informs his emperor that God has decreed that he will lose his mind and disappear into the wilderness and live as an ox. It sounds like fun to me, but not, not if I were an emperor. The glorious king whose life has been luxurious and whose every deal has been prosperous is about to lose his ability to reason. He's going to eat grass and neglect all forms of personal hygiene. He'll lose his kingdom for an undisclosed amount of time. But there's a silver lining, Daniel tells him. There's still hope. Because though the tree will be felled in a most humiliating way, the stump and the roots will remain. When the humbling is complete, the king will acknowledge that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And once he knows that heaven, the God of, uh, of heaven, the king of heaven rules, his sanity and his throne will be restored. And then without pausing, Daniel offers up some counsel. Repent. Humble yourself before God, Daniel says, by, by practicing righteousness and showing mercy to the, the oppressed. Daniel's a good preacher. right? He, he knows that you can't just drop the hellfire and brimstone without calling your audience to, to repent and, and to appeal to God's mercy. right? Think about it. Daniel hears this vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar and he recognizes in it both the righteous judgment and the grace of God. The Lord has revealed that he is going to blow up the king's life. That's already been decreed. It's happening. But what else has God revealed here? That he's already planning to restore him. This punishment isn't God's wrath but his discipline, right? God disciplines those he loves. He has decreed this great fall of Nebuchadnezzar while foretelling how it's going to end. It's gonna end in the king's acknowledgement of the most high and the restoration of his kingdom. This is Nebuchadnezzar's story, but it's also the Jewish exile's story. 
They have been broken down. Their kingdom has been destroyed. They lost their minds when they rebelled against the Lord and worshiped false gods in their land. And they were sent out of their kingdom to go to Babylon with the promise that they would someday, when the time was fulfilled, be brought back into the promised land. Isn't that cool? This is what I geek out about. Do you see the, 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 the kindness and the severity of God? James tells us he, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I just lost my place. I was getting proud. There we go. When you face the consequences of your sin, are you willing to humble yourself before God and repent? Or do you double down and defend yourself? God doesn't promise that we won't face discipline in this life for our sins and our iniquities, even for those he has promised to redeem. But sometimes he'll relent of disaster and he'll never deny a contrite heart. He's slow to anger, quick to forgive, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The prophet Micah writes in in chapter six, verse eight of his book, he says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent. He doesn't break off his sins. He doesn't acknowledge the most high as the king of heaven, at least not yet. Now let's look at the dream fulfilled, starting in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is, this not, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Gotta tell you, I was excited to preach this this chapter when Pastor Ryan asked me to do it this week because I got, I got to watch a, a king become like a full-on hippie metalhead, right? And I get to tell you all about that. A, a year has passed after Daniel interprets his vision and given him his warnings. And, and we find Nebuchadnezzar hanging out on the roof of his palace. He looks out at his city and he smiles as he takes in the beauty Right? He looks at the views and he sees these beautiful buildings and thousands and thousands of subjects walking the streets, working and reaping. The fruit of their labor will continue to fund the mighty military and the expansion of his kingdom. And he thinks, <laughs> it's all because of me. Nebuchadnezzar considers all the greatness and glory of his kingdom and comments to himself about how he has built all of this. 
And in mid-brag, right as his boasting reaches its apex, the king hears a voice from heaven. Nothing takes you down off your high like a big loud voice booming down while you're in, in enjoying yourself, right? Buzzkill. The sentence he had already been warned about was now to be executed. Everything that Daniel predicts comes true. His once sharp mind begins to shift in, into cloudiness. He flees from his palace into the fields, stooping low, bowing down to eat grass right off the ground. As the days and weeks pass, his hair has grown unkempt. His nails have grown long and sharp like talons. He smells gamey, right? You ever smell hippies when they come into like a store? He smells really gamey. He's covered in the dew, right? And for months, the once proud emperor lives like a beast, an ox, a bird. This is insane. He's He's insane. He's absolutely nuts. And it's crazy to think of a king, the king of Babylon, the mightiest, most glorious empire in the known world at the time, to behave like this. Scholar Jim Hamilton asks the question, what's more insane? To act like a cow and eat grass for a few months? Or to refuse to acknowledge the Lord as the sovereign ruler over the affairs of men? and for arrogating lordship to oneself. To, to boast in your own affairs, to boast in your own aims, to, in your own accomplishments, right? While, while you ignore and fail to honor God as the sovereign, glorious provider of everything you have is insane, church. And many of us live like this all the time. We might as well be eating grass and going full vegan hippie like Nebuchadnezzar. James 1.17 reminds us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Your kingdom, your kingdom, your dominion, your success, your wealth, your glory, your family, they're all purposeful gifts from your heavenly Father. And to fail to acknowledge him in all our ways is insanity at best and apostasy at worst. And finally, I mean that, finally, after the completion of the seven periods of time in the wilderness, Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses. At the end of the days, verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Listen to this song, right? He says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, Nebuchadnezzar Right? He says, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Finally, the beast king humbly repents. He recognizes and acknowledges the most high God, the Lord, 
the God of Israel, is no longer just one deity in his pantheon of gods and goddesses. Nebuchadnezzar bows the knee to the God who is sovereign over all kingdoms, in heaven and on earth, from eternity past to eternity future. The Lord God asks no one for permission, nor can anyone offer him critique or correction on his, on his will. The Lord reigns, and the pagan king of Babylon finally knows it. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He knows that from personal experience. God restores Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He restores his glory. Nebuchadnezzar returns to his palace and his throne, but he is not the same. Now, he's a living stump <laughs> with iron bands around him, a servant of the Most High God, the Lord, the God of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar praises him. So what? The Most High is the sovereign ruler over all the earth. He provides for his people. And he can give and take authority whenever and to whomever he wishes. God had warned Nebuchadnezzar. And ultimately he carried out his judgment upon his pride by humbling the king until he would acknowledge and confess the power and glory of the Lord. God graciously restores the king's sanity and sets him back over his kingdom. So for you, whether, whether our issue, whether your issue is your own pride causing you to exalt yourself by admiring your own perceived goodness or greatness or glory, and, or, or it's your failure to give God the rightful honor for the good in your life, or maybe, as I, as I said earlier, it's that nagging fear and frustration of living as a people in exile under prideful, godless authorities here on earth. The good news remains the same. Our merciful Father has exalted Jesus, our Savior, as the King of heaven and earth. He rules the nations. All authorities are stewards of, of his world. They all answer to him whether they acknowledge it or not. In Christ alone, we can find the same mercy and grace that he revealed to Nebuchadnezzar to humble us and to make us whole by faith in his name. Christ Jesus, the king of glory, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and died for the sins of his people. He rose again and was exalted by God into heaven where he reigns forever. He will return someday to judge the nations, including their kings, and he will receive all the glory due him. We, like Nebuchadnezzar, must repent of our sins and stand fast in the truth that Jesus Christ reigns in heaven and on earth. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble.
pray with me. Our almighty, our almighty God, we come to you, some of us are, are repenting now as we, as we think about how we've exalted ourselves or failed to acknowledge and honor you for the, uh, the goodness and the glorious things in our lives, for the success of our hands. Help us, Lord, to, to uh, have a right heart with you, that, that, we, would, um, that we would honor you with, with our lips and with our hearts. Some of us, Lord, are, are recognizing that, that we have put too much stock in worldly leaders and world leaders, and, and it's causing us to, to be in great fear. God, comfort us, calm our anxiety, and, and remind us that you are the sovereign over all nations. You are the Lord. And, and, and Lord, while, while the stewards of your world now reign in, in very flawed ways sometimes, we look forward to the day when you will return and you will rule over us as our glorious, perfect king. Give us hope for that, we pray, in, in this day. And, and I pray that the hope and love and joy in us to now would shine as a light to the, to the nations, that people would see that the followers of Christ are not anxious, they're not prideful, they're not boastful, uh, but that they live for your glory and bow humbly to you. We love you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.